Well, like I said, we find ourselves in the heights of Romans chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at Romans 9, verse 13 through 18. And so go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to Romans 9, verses 13 through 18. And we're going to uh, read this passage together. Romans 9, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Oh, by no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. Perhaps you have a great uncle, the type that the family doesn't like to talk about. Perhaps your great uncle died on the streets. Perhaps he lived a highly successful life, but hated the God that he was raised to love. Perhaps he converted to Buddhism or joined some cult. And perhaps you have a great aunt who was the epitome of godliness or another great uncle who was a faithful missionary or pastor. What do we do when the apple falls far from the tree? When in spite of having the same privileges of growing up in the same gospel-believing family, one child lives and dies for Christ and another child lives and dies for self. One child trusts and follows Christ and another child rejects Jesus to the end. Some of us delve into the heart-wrenching mystery of our children. How come one child is walking with Christ and another is not walking with Christ? Listen, the more personal these questions become, the harder these questions are to answer. I know a friend from out of state a faithful man of God who served as an elder in his church, regularly led his family in devotions, kept church and worshiping God a priority for all four of his kids. And as they became adults, three followed in his footsteps, faithfully walking with Christ as their Lord and Savior. And one child remains hardened in her unbelief. If she were to tragically die today, remaining hard to God, is God somehow unfaithful. I mean, many of us have prayed for her for years. Is there, is there something lacking or ineffectual in our prayers? And then on the other end of the spectrum, we see people who grow up with, with no spiritual benefits, never having darkened the door of a church until much later in life, terrible family situations, full of abuse, and by God's grace, they hear the good news, and instead of being repulsed, they're drawn to it like a magnet. 
They understand and fully embrace dying to self to live for Christ. They see the precious sacrifice of Jesus as the ultimate gift from God. This could describe some of you in this very room. And we rejoice at God's amazing grace, and we are thankful that he chooses to save some of us. But we still ask the question, is God not equally sovereign in both situations? Does he not have the same free will to choose some to be saved and others to harden? Does not God even have that same free will even within the same family? That's been Paul's argument that he started last week. Look at verse 13. He speaks of twins. And what does he say of these twins? Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember this hatred that God is said to have for Esau is not the same way that we hate, full of sinful passion and and vitriol. To say God hated Esau is emphasizing not some deep-seated personal hatred for Esau, but it's a contrast with God's love for the elect. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. To not choose Esau is, in a sense, to, to hate him. It's similar to how Jesus says to us in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not telling us that we should loathe our family members or our own life. Jesus was making comparison, a contrast. True disciples must love Jesus above all else. And so compared to the most profound love of God, choosing those who will belong to him to not choose is like hatred. And so Paul's point is very clear. Before they were born, God sovereignly decided the course of both Jacob's and Esau's life. Why? Verse 11 actually tells us. Go back to Romans 9, verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of human works, but because of God who calls. And so to think then that that God only elects and calls some people, to think that God chooses to save some people and, and hardens others, as we are going to continue to see in our passage, invites some objections. And like every good professor and teacher, Paul anticipates those objections, doesn't he, in verse 14? Look at verse 14. What then shall we say, Paul queries? Is there injustice on God's part? This just seems wrong. It seems unjust to say, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Perhaps it is unfair of God. And in fact, if you have these objections, you actually understand what Paul's been trying to teach you. You see, every parent as they hold that precious little baby in their arms, thanks God for his good gift. So then how can God seem to say some of those babies will grow up to prove that God didn't choose them? But that is exactly the picture that God and Paul are trying to give us. Not so that we can worry about whether our children are among the elect, 
but so that we can be comforted. You're like, how is that comforting? His whole point in beginning of Romans or in the middle of Romans 8 all the way through now in Romans 9 is to help us understand that God is that sovereign. He is fully able to save anyone in his perfect timing. No one is far too gone. No one is far too evil to be among God's chosen. No one can say, I'm not good enough to get to God. I've done some terrible things and God cannot save me. I've sinned for far too long for God to choose me. Here's the glorious comfort. God's work isn't based on you. It's never about figuring out if you're the elect or if you're among the chosen. God simply tells every single person who would hear the good news, repent and believe, turn and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Come when you are weak and you're heavy laden, you recognize your sin and the burden of that sin and guilt and you think, I need God to take this away. I need Jesus to be punished in my place. And you bring your burden of your own sin to the Lord and you trust in Christ. That is the response that God calls every single one of us. The fact that God unconditionally chooses his children reminds us again that salvation can come at any time to anyone because it's based on God's work, not ours. And on top of that, we can be assured that the work that God started in us will always finish in us. And that God will accomplish Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All this is rooted in knowing that God is fully and completely sovereign. That nothing limits his sovereignty. Nothing limits his sovereign free will to do whatever he wants, including save sinners. And that his sovereignty is eternal, like he is. Now, objectors think this is unjust, that if God were this sovereign over salvation, that he wouldn't be a just judge. That because God plans the course of history, because he knows and plans and purposes, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, that he's somehow unfair. But Paul wants to squash that idea right away, doesn't he? Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And he then proves this point, helping us to remember from the Old Testament, God has always worked this way. God alone has full, sovereign, free will to do whatever he pleases whenever he pleases, with whomever he pleases. In fact, that's what makes him God, and that's what makes him trustworthy. So to help prove his point, Paul takes us actually to Exodus, and we're going to flip back there in a little bit. And we're going to see this morning two reasons why God's sovereign free will is always fair. We're going to see two reasons why God's sovereign free will is always fair. These are reasons why we should never say that God choosing some to be saved is somehow unjust or unrighteous or unfair. Now, these two reasons flow from the objection that Paul raises, right? The objection is, is there injustice on God's part? And that word injustice 
It can be used to speak of a crooked judge, you know, a judge who takes a bribe to pervert the course of justice. It could also be translated as God's fairness. It could also be translated as a charge against God's righteousness. And so the question comes up, because God is completely sovereign and has control even of salvation and those who will not eventually be saved too, is God unrighteous? Is God unjust? Is God not fair? Is God unrighteous because Jacob I loved but Esau hated? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not. God's character is always righteous. His character is always just. He is always fair. And that works perfectly with his sovereignty. And so the first reason why God's sovereign free will is always fair, number one, God's very nature demands unconditional election. God's very nature demands unconditional election. It demands God choosing us unconditionally without a, 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 a care about who we are or who we aren't. In our judicial system, one of the more important witnesses can be what's called a character witness. This is a witness generally outside of the family of the accused who can vouch for his or her character, maybe a neighbor or somebody who, who knows this person in the workplace. And the goal is to show the incongruity between a man's character and the accusation. So when God's character is maligned with our hypothetical question, is God fair? Is God even righteous? The answer is, well, go back and look at God's character to look at how he's worked in the past and how that fits perfectly with a sovereign, just God. The whole of the Bible is essentially God's character witness. And so he goes back and look at verse 15. And he's going to quote a passage from Exodus. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The focus here is entirely on the election side, entirely on God's sovereign free will to be merciful whenever he wants and to be compassionate whenever he wants. But where do we find this quote? To understand this quote and understand everything behind this quote, let's go back to Exodus 32. Turn in your Bibles back to Exodus chapter 32. Now, Exodus 32 is perhaps one of the most infamous passages in the whole of scriptures. The Israelites are fresh off of seeing God work miracle after miracle during delivering them from the hands of the mighty Egyptians. They experience the, the ten mighty plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, a pillar of cloud and fire that led them and guide them through to Mount Sinai, a trumpet and eruptive roar from Mount Sinai announcing God's presence to give Moses the law. They are fresh off all of these miraculous experiences and they grow in patient and they grow worried when Moses is getting the law from God at Mount Sinai and so what do they do they invent their own way to worship Yahweh they make a golden calf to worship we see the culmination of this series of events verse 6 Exodus 32 verse 6 
And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The implication that playing included a lot more than what your children are doing. So Yahweh speaks to Moses right away in verse 7. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. God's wrath is rightly intended for such a debauched display, but Moses intercedes for them. He appeals to God's covenant faithfulness. Go down to verse 12. Moses is praying. He says, Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did God bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? So turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Later, he goes on to continue to pray, and he talks to the Israelites first. Verse 30, the next day, Exodus 32, verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, oh, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses returned to Yahweh, and he said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will please forgive their sin, but if not, oh, please blot me out of your book that you have written he begs God to be taken out of his eternal book of those who God has chosen for life, if only that might save Israel. If possible, Moses wants to be a substitute for the people of Israel. That foreshadows God's perfect substitute in Christ, doesn't it? When God is gracious to Moses, he is not blotted out of the book of life, and he's also gracious to the nation. And he still plans to lead them to the promised land. Before they leave Mount Sinai, as Moses continues to pray to God, Moses asks something incredible. Go to chapter 33, verse 18. Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Let me see your splendor. Let me see your character, the perfections of all that you are, God, so that we can be assured again of your promises. And in response, God says very clearly, verse 19, And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, I think God is saying to Moses and to us, my glory is expressed in my name, in the goodness of my name. My name is Yahweh, the self-existent one. And my name is expressed in my freedom to have mercy on whom I have mercy, to have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is who I am. This is my name, God says. And that's why in the very next chapter, we see the same thing as God proclaims who he is in 34, verse 6 and 7. 
He says, Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. Again, the very nature of God as God is to be the only self-sufficient, uncreated, eternal being. He is the one who alone has sovereign free will to do whatever he desires, which includes have mercy on whom he has mercy and pour out his wrath on those whom he sees determined to do that. And this should remind us of the very first time that God actually reveals his name to Moses. Go back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. See, the very first time God reveals his name to Moses, he emphasizes the fact that he is self-existent. He is the great I am. And so Moses is tending sheep in the land of Midian after he has run away from Egypt, and he sees this burning bush, and all of a sudden the burning bush starts talking to him, and behold, it's God. And so this is what he says, Exodus 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What is God saying when he says, I am the I am is simply saying the I am being. I am the uncreated one. I am the one who is without beginning and out end. I am the ultimate sovereign. God alone depends on no one and nothing for anything. That's what it means when he says I am. And I am is very much related to his covenant name Yahweh. And so God continues, verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, pay attention to those footnotes because it helps you understand that Yahweh is the same and related to the Hebrew word or verb to be or I am. Yahweh. Is God's name. I am is the meaning. He is self-sufficient, uncreated. So in the very name of God, Yahweh, is the concept of him being self-sufficient, uncreated, and totally free to do whatever God wants to do. So Yahweh has sovereign freedom to do whatever he wants. It's part of his nature. It's part of his essential being. And in Exodus 33 and 34 and Romans 9, 15, it means that he has mercy on whom he has mercy, that he has compassion on whom he has compassion. And when God chooses people to belong to him, it is always according to his good and sovereign free will. Let's go back to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Remember our question. Well, then, if God is absolutely sovereign and has this freedom of will that no other being can ever have, is there injustice on God's part? Is God somehow unjust in choosing whomsoever he wills unconditionally? 
Paul's answer is to give a character witness from Exodus. He is the only self-sufficient one, able to do whatever, whenever it's in his name. His being is to be free, to have mercy on whom he has mercy and to have compassion on whom he has compassion. So the conclusion is obvious then. If God is absolutely and completely free to do whatever he wills, if his election of those who will be saved is completely unconditional, what does he say? Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, not only can't I find anywhere in Scripture that teaches that mankind has absolutely sovereign free will? This verse explicitly teaches against our free will having anything to do with our salvation. You see that, right? Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. One commentator writes, this verse excludes in the clearest possible terms the notion that human free will is the fundamental factor in divine election and thus our salvation. And the reason this is completely fair, it's perfectly compatible with his holy, sovereign, and merciful nature. So why do so many Christians struggle with this idea of election? Why do we struggle with it? Well, first, we actually answer the problem of why there's evil in the world wrongly. How many of you have been in a Sunday school class and had a precious little two-year-old or five-year-old ask you, how did sin come into the world by Adam and Eve? How would you answer that? If we answer it with God gave Adam and Eve free will to choose, we go beyond what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not tell us why perfectly good creatures in perfect communion with God would ever choose to do evil. The Bible leaves it a mystery. Only that God allows evil and it fits into his perfect plan and that he's not the origin of evil. How this works is designed and left to be a mystery. If we lean heavily on the argument that sin came because God gave us free will, then we will likely struggle with the idea that God chooses some to save and not all. Well, there's a second reason why we often struggle with this idea of election. It's because we see salvation as something God ought to make equally available to everyone. And that, somehow, that's the definition of fair. They were all basically bestowed with a kernel of goodness that makes us worthy of having an opportunity for salvation. But the fact of the matter is, if God were truly just, fair, and act in accord with his perfect righteousness, all that would fairly belong to us is wrath. That's why God's plan of salvation in Christ is so essential to his justice. I mean, we sang about it, right? 
God the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son is part of what makes him just because God has to punish every single sin. Because he has to punish every single sin, it's either going to be punished in Jesus in your place or in ourselves, in hell forever. And so punishing Christ in our place is the only way that God is perfectly just and fair to deal with every single sin because his wrath must be paid in that perfect substitute sacrifice. And just as it is completely fair for God's plan of salvation to be fully up to his determination, so too is God's unconditional choosing of the elect. Just go back to the text. What does it say? Verse 16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Listen, such a big view of God brings glory to God. Remember what Moses asked to see of God? What was it? It's glory, right? It brings glory to God alone to show mercy on whomever God desires to show mercy. The focus is off us and onto our sovereign and glorious God in everything. Perhaps one of the deepest points of corruption from the fall is that we think and feel that our hope and happiness, our significance and security come from being praised rather than praising God. Remember, the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God, and unconditional election clearly reflects God's glorious nature. Well, the second reason why God's sovereign free will is always fair is God's purposes demand unconditional hardening. God's purposes demand unconditional hardening. It's a lot easier to take comfort in God's unconditional election. But his unconditional hardening, it's a lot more difficult. And this goes back to the example from the beginning. How in the world are we supposed to process a beloved family member who dies rejecting Jesus as their Lord and Savior? How come one sibling so obviously loves Jesus and another doesn't? How comfortable are you with the idea of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated? When next Paul moves from God's unconditional election to God's unconditional hardening, God hardens not based on works, not based on knowing how bad people were going to be long ahead of time. The teaching of these verses teaches something called reprobation. You guys might have heard the term, it gets thrown around. Oh, that's a reprobate. What do you mean by that? Kind of someone is the scum of the earth, right? Theologically speaking, reprobation is this. I'll give you Wayne Grudem's definition. Reprobation is a sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins, and thereby to manifest his justice. 
It is God's sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby manifest God's justice. Now, to be clear, reprobation is different than something that is called double predestination. Right? Now, some of you guys are going to be like, man, we are getting into the weeds of theology here. This is not, I promise you. This is important because you have to understand these things to get this text. Double predestination is the concept that says, just as God predestines and elects and chooses some to become Christian, in the same exact way, God predestines and chooses those to not believe in Jesus. But election and reprobation are different. And double predestination is incorrect. We understand that God is sovereign over both election and reprobation, but they are unique. And there are three obvious differences between election and reprobation. First of all, election is choosing some unto salvation, and it brings God great joy. And he does so in love, Ephesians 1.4. But reprobation bring, brings God great sorrow, Romans 9, 2, and many other places. Second, no sinner is said to deserve election, but every sinner is said to deserve reprobation. In other words, God does not harden or condemn otherwise innocent human beings. Third, Election highlights God's grace. Reprobation highlights God's justice and his wrath. In fact, a super helpful way to think of it is as if God is writing a script. And that author, if you're writing a script, has every right to write one character good and another character bad. He has every right for the purpose of the story to make different characters for different purposes. Jude 4 actually makes this same point. Jude, in the New Testament, Jude, verse 4, says, God wrote beforehand those designated for condemnation. Did you know that verse is in the Bible? And Romans 9 teaches us reprobation happens because God hardens. But in a profound mystery, the hardening is very much still something that we naturally do ourselves. But similar to election, God's hardening, God's purpose in reprobation is truly unconditional. It's not based on us. It's not based on our works, good or bad. Or God looking down the quarters of time to see that someone would really choose to be a really bad man and therefore God says, oh, reprobate. God is God and God acts based on his sovereign free will. He is the ultimate authority of all life. So to make his point, Paul again goes to quote Exodus. And specifically, what God chooses to do and says he's choosing to do with Pharaoh. Go to verse 17. For the scripture says, Romans 9 verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There is one very important word I want you to circle if you are circlers in your Bible, and it is the word, is the fourth word in the quote, the word purpose. You see, it was God's intention, it was God's 
purpose to raise Pharaoh up, to harden his heart, to make him stubborn, so that all ten plagues would happen before he finally lets God's people go. And what was the purpose? Verse 17 says it, right? That I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That God's power over all creation, over all the gods of Egypt would be obvious and that God's power would be known in the earth so that Rahab, the harlot in Jericho, would hear of God and fear God and help the spies and so that she would eventually marry an Israelite and eventually enter into the line of Messiah. Why'd that happen? Because she heard of God. All of that happened. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Jews even today would know that the one true God passes over sin because a sacrifice can cover sins so that they could see the Passover lamb and recognize the glorious lamb of God, Jesus Christ. There is great purpose in everything God does, including hardening hearts. Now we know God has in mind the unconditional hardening of Pharaoh's heart to accomplish his purpose because of what verse 18 says. Look at verse 18. So then, this is speaking of God, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul now states both sides of the issue, God's unconditional mercy and his unconditional hardening. Both are totally based on God's sovereign what? Will. God's sovereign free will. Every individual who has ever lived is subject to his or her creator. And we are either mercifully elected or hardened and set to endure God's just wrath. So Paul anticipates the question, is mercy coming because something good in us? Verse 18, what does it say? He has mercy on whomever he wills. Maybe you might say, well, I bet hardening is based on those who harden themselves against God, those who God knows will reject him. But what does he say in verse 18? God hardens whomever he wills. This is not a nice truth for some of us. And some normally good commentators try to say that because Paul mentions Pharaoh, that the issue at hand is really God hardening the one who has hardened himself. I'm going to quote somebody. I won't tell you who it is, but there are at least three individuals I read that said basically the same thing. Neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened himself. Is that what this verse says? No. Continues. The Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and refused to humble himself is made plain in the story. So God's hardening of him was a judicial act, abandoning him to his own stubbornness. That's the exact opposite of what Paul just said in verse 18. Right? Read it. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and God hardens whomever he wills. 
God hardening Pharaoh isn't some judicial act based on Pharaoh hardening himself. If it were based on Pharaoh's free will to harden himself, how in the world would God continue to accomplish his purposes? Verse 17, right? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up and hardened you, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And that is our main point again. God's purposes sometimes demand unconditional hardening. Because that's the only way that God is completely in control. That's the only way he can genuinely said to be the author of life and have freedom to do whatever he wants and accomplish his perfect plans and purposes. And so there is a great mystery here. God uses evil that he allows, yet doesn't create evil because he's all good, right? And the mystery continues. God wills to harden some in unbelief, yet he mourns over the lost, not desiring any to perish. There are great tensions and there are mysteries in the scriptures that we cannot fully solve. And Paul gives us a few more of those answers in the verses we'll look at next week, and I'm not going to go there. But in the time that remains, we need to make sure that Paul isn't twisting the Exodus narrative to fit his own ideas about election and reprobation. And so as we close, let's go back to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. Of course, we understand that this is spirit-inspired scripture and that Paul isn't twisting Exodus, but if you don't believe what Paul clearly says in verse 18, that both mercy and hardening happen because of God's sovereign free will, and you say something like our commentators that God's hardening is based off of our self-hardening, the implication is that Paul's stuttering or perhaps is at best unclearly representing Exodus. But I think you're going to understand that he's not misrepresenting Exodus at all. So if you're in Exodus 9, you've noticed that we pick up towards the end of the 10 plagues. We're in the 6th and 7th plagues. Repeatedly, Moses has gone into Pharaoh and communicated God's words, let my people go. And again and again, we see the cycle again and again. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let them go. So God brings a plague. And then he says to Moses, oh, please ask God to help this plague stop. And so Moses intercedes and the plague stops. And even a couple of times he says, okay, I'll let him go if you, if you just let this plague stop. And then as soon as the plague stops, he says, just kidding. He says, I have a hard heart. I'm going to harden my own heart. They cannot go. Now the cycle of hardening and back and forth is far from pointless. It's not done to increase human suffering. No, Moses tells Pharaoh all of this has happened, including his hard heart. Because it's God's purpose. So we're going to look at the quote that he makes here. Exodus 9, verse 16. Moses is speaking to Pharaoh. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up. He's speaking God's words. To show you my power. 
so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. At the end of this plague of hail, we see the same pattern. Plague, pleading with God, relief, and hardening. And so go down to verse 34, the end of the chapter. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart, he and his servants. And some say, aha, self-hardening. Paul was wrong. It isn't God who started it. It was Pharaoh who started it. But then you get to the very next verse. What does it say in verse 35? So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Oh, passes. Something outside of Pharaoh hardened it. And he did not let the people of Israel go, just as Yahweh had spoken through Moses. When had God spoken to Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart? That this would be a pattern? Was it before or after Pharaoh hardened his own heart? It was before Moses was even back in Egypt. Go back to Exodus 4, verse 21. You see, Moses, he, he grows up in Egypt, and he's, a, he's that boy in the reeds, right, that is found by the princess of Egypt, and he grows up, and he feels compassion for his people, and he ends up killing an Egyptian taskmaster for mercilessly beating Israelite, and so he flees into the land of Midian, and that's where God calls him to go back. And he explains his name like we read earlier, but then he says this, and he gives him explicit information about what's going to happen when he goes back. Exodus 4, verse 21. And Yahweh said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people It was God's plan all along to harden Pharaoh's heart, to do all ten plagues. We're reminded of that fact all throughout the story. Go to chapter 7, before the very first plague. Chapter 7, verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Back in 421. And then after the first plague, chapter 7, verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. And so we see very clearly, it isn't Pharaoh hardening his own heart, working somehow before God hardening his heart, or maybe equally working together. It is God who is said to harden Pharaoh's heart. Because as Exodus 9, 16 tells us, God always has a purpose. He always has a plan. Sure, in Pharaoh's experience, he never felt like his arm was being twisted or that someone had hardened his heart. He's like, man, why do I not want to let these people go? No, he was hardening his own heart by his own kind of self-experience. He did what he was most inclined to do. But God graciously gives us a peek behind the curtain, doesn't he? Why? So that God might 
be glorified. He would be glorified as we realize that God's purposes are certainly going to come to pass, even if that means hardening or trials. Even as dictators rise and fall, we should recognize his powerful, eternal reign over everyone and everything. See, the Israelites understood God's purpose after they were finally delivered from Pharaoh and the Red Sea collapsed on all of his chariots. Turn to Exodus 15 and see what they said. Exodus 15. They recognized God as the ultimate sovereign who had accomplished absolutely everything here. What do they say? What's the purpose that this song would be sung? Exodus 15, verse 1. I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh, self-existent one, is his name. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And verse 18, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. In other words, Yahweh is sovereign forever and ever. So God's sovereignty over all things becomes the backbone of our greatest hope. Because our great and glorious king who will reign forever and ever is good. And he's working all things for good. And is powerful enough to accomplish everything his sovereign will desires. And in a typical Piper fashion, John Piper writes in his book on Providence, the rock-solid foundation of our encouragement is the all-governing providence of God. When we are in prison with Joseph or when our baby is in the crocodile-infested bulrushes with Moses or when we are despised by Pharaoh, the fact that God's all-wise providence governs even the hatred of our persecutors is meant to put steel in the backbone of our faith and to help us endure everything for the joy that is set before us. but that doesn't make these things easy to work through. It doesn't mean that our hearts don't break when God seems to harden those that we love. What are we to do in those situations? Just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, God is sovereign. If he's chosen, no worries. And if he's not, nothing I can do anyways. That is absolutely the wrong response. First of all, remember, because God's election is unconditional, it doesn't matter how great a sin your loved one has pursued, God can always save the worst of sinners. Paul reminds us he has mercy on whomever he wills. And since you're not God and you don't know who's elect, you don't know who anybody is that God has chosen, so pray, plead, and persevere in your efforts to help everyone that you know turn to Christ today. And second, as hard as life can get, as heartbreaking as interactions with other sinners can be, know that God has a purpose 
even for sinners who never turn from their sin. We may not understand that purpose in our lifetime, but again and again, God tells us, lean on me. When you are weak, I am strong. My plans and purposes will never fail. So even when your heart breaks, because you're pretty sure your beloved just died without knowing Christ, God's purposes can never fail, even in tragedy. There is always light at the end of your darkness, the light of a sovereign, omnipotent God reigning over everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this profound and powerful text, a text that teaches us the glories of your mercy, your sovereign free will to choose those who would belong to you, and the horrors of reprobation. Lord, may we be motivated all the more to be used as your instruments for gospel purposes, to share the glorious truth of Jesus Christ with those trusting that there is no one that is too far gone. Help us redouble those efforts in giving you all the glory every time every sinner repents and turns and follows you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a glorious, big God. And may that comfort us, even in our confusion, even as we recognize mysteries that you don't solve for us. You tell us simply, you are a big God, and we just need to trust in you. We thank you for the comfort that that provides, that nothing can separate us from your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name.